Section 10 of The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letters 21 to 28 to the Honourable Daines Barrington. Letter twenty one to the Honourable Daines Barrington, Selborne, September the twenty eighth, seventeen seventy four. Dear Sir, as the swift or black martin is the largest of the British hirondines, so is it undoubtedly the latest comer, for I remember but one instance of its appearing before the last week in April, and in some of our late frosty harsh springs it has not been seen till the beginning of May. This species usually arrives in pairs. The swift, like the sand-martin, is very defective in architecture, making no crust or shell for its nest, but forming it of dry grasses and feathers, very rudely and inartificially put together. With all my attention to these birds I have never been able once to discover one in the act of collecting or carrying in materials, so that I have suspected, since their nests are exactly the same, that they sometimes usurp upon the house-sparrows and expel them, as sparrows do the house and sand-martin well remembering that I have seen them squabbling together at the entrance of their holes, and the sparrows up in arms and much disconcerted at these intruders. And yet I am assured by a nice observer in such matters that they do collect feathers for their nests in Andalusia, and that he has shot them with such materials in their mouths. Swifts, like sand-martins, carry on the business of nidification quite in the dark, in crannies of castles and towers and steeples, and upon the tops of the walls of churches under the roof, and therefore cannot be so narrowly watched as those species that build more openly. But from what I could ever observe they begin nesting about the middle of May, and I have remarked from eggs taken that they have sat hard by the ninth of June. In general they haunt tall buildings, churches and steeples, and breed only in such, and yet in this village some pairs frequent the lowest and meanest cottages, and educate their young under those thatched roofs. We remember but one instance where they breed out of buildings, and that is in the sides of a deep chalk-pit, near the town of Odium, in this county, where we have seen many pairs entering the crevices, and skimming and squeaking round the precipices. As I have regarded these amusive birds with no small attention, if I should advance something new and peculiar with respect to them, and different from all other birds, I might perhaps be credited, especially as my assertion is the result of many years' exact observation. The fact that I would advance is that swifts tread or copulate on the wing, and I would wish any nice observer that is startled at this supposition to use his own eyes, and I think he will soon be convinced. In another class of animals, that is the insect, Nothing is so common as to see the different species of many genera in conjunction as they fly. The swift is almost continually on the wing, and as it never settles on the ground, on trees or roofs, would seldom find opportunity for amorous rites, was it not enabled to indulge them in the air. If any person would watch these birds of a fine morning in May, as they are sailing round at a great height from the ground, he would see every now and then one drop on the back of another, and both of them sink down together for many fathoms, with a loud piercing shriek. This I take to be the juncture when the business of generation is carrying on. 
As the swift eats, drinks, collects material for its nest, and, as it seems, propagates on the wing, it appears to live more in the air than any other bird, and to perform all functions there save those of sleeping and incubation. This hirundo differs widely from its congeners in laying invariably but two eggs at a time, which are milk-white, long and peaked at the small end, whereas the other species lay at each brood from four to six. It is a most alert bird, rising very early and retiring to roost very late, and is on the wing in the height of summer at least sixteen hours. In the longest days it does not withdraw to rest till a quarter before nine in the evening, being the latest of all day-birds. Just before they retire, whole groups of them assemble high in the air, and squeak and shoot about with wonderful rapidity. But this bird is never so much alive as in sultry, thundery weather, when it expresses great alacrity, and calls forth all its powers. In hot mornings, several, getting together in little parties, dash round the steeples and churches, squeaking as they go in a very clamorous manner. These, by nice observers, are supposed to be males, serenading their sitting hens and not without reason, since they seldom squeak till they come close to the walls or eaves, and since those within utter at the same time a little inward note of complacency. When the hen has sat hard all day, she rushes forth just as it is almost dark, and stretches and relieves her weary limbs, and snatches a scanty meal for a few minutes, and then returns to her duty of incubation. Swifts, when wantonly and cruelly shot while they have young, discover a little lump of insects in their mouths, which they pouch and hold under their tongue. In general they feed in a much higher district than the other species, a proof that gnats and other insects do also abound to a considerable height in the air. They also range to vast distances, since locomotion is no labour to them who are endowed with such wonderful powers of wing. Their powers seem to be in proportion to their levers, and their wings are longer in proportion than those of almost any other bird. When they are mute, or ease themselves in flight, they raise their wings, and make them meet over their backs. At some certain times in the summer I had remarked that swifts were hawking very low for hours together over pools and streams, and could not help inquiring into the object of their pursuit that induced them to descend so much below their usual range. After some trouble I found that they were taking Phryganei, Ephemerae, and Libellulae, Cadewflies, mayflies, and dragonflies, that were just emerged out of their Aurelia state. I then no longer wondered that they should be so willing to stoop for a prey that afforded them such plentiful and succulent nourishment. They bring out their young about the middle or latter end of July, but as these never become perchers, nor that I could ever discern are fed on the wing by their dams, the coming forth of the young is not so notorious as in the other species. On the thirtieth of last June I untiled the eaves of an house where many pairs build, and found in each nest only two squab-naked pulli. On the eighth of July I repeated the same inquiry, and found they had made very little progress towards a fledged state, but were still naked and helpless. From whence we may conclude that birds whose way of life keeps them perpetually on the wing would not be able to quit their nest till the end of the month. Swallows and martins, that have numerous families, are continually feeding them every two or three minutes, while swifts, that have but two young to maintain, are much at their leisure, and do not attend on their nests for hours together. Sometimes they pursue and strike at hawks that come in their way, 
but not with that vehemence and fury that swallows express on the same occasion. They are out all day long in wet days, feeding about, and disregarding still rain. From whence two things may be gathered. First, that many insects abide high in the air, even in rain, and next, that the feathers of these birds must be well preened to resist so much wet. Windy, and particularly windy weather with heavy showers, they dislike, and on such days withdraw, and are scarce ever seen. There is a circumstance respecting the colour of swifts, which seems not to be unworthy our attention. When they arrive in the spring they are all over of a glossy dark soot colour, except their chins, which are white, but by being all day long in the sun and air, they become quite weather-beaten and bleached before they depart, and yet they return glossy again in the spring. Now, if they pursue the sun into lower latitudes, as some suppose, in order to enjoy a perpetual summer, why do they not return bleached? Do they not rather, perhaps, retire to rest for a season, and at that juncture molt and change their feathers, since all other birds are known to molt soon after the season of breeding? Swifts are very anomalous in many particulars, dissenting from all their congeners, not only in the number of their young, but in breeding but once in a summer, whereas all the other British hirondines breed invariably twice. It is past all doubt that swifts can breed but once, since they withdraw in a short time after the flight of their young, and some time before their congeners bring out their second brood. We may here remark that, as swifts breed but once in a summer, and only two at a time, and the other hirondines twice, the latter, who lay from four to six eggs, increase at an average five times as fast as the former. But in nothing are swifts more singular than in their early retreat. They retire, as to the main body of them, by the tenth of August, and sometimes a few days sooner, and every straggler invariably withdraws by the twentieth, while their congeners, all of them, stay till the beginning of October many of them all through that month, and some occasionally to the beginning of November. This early retreat is mysterious and wonderful, since that time is often the sweetest season in the year. But what is more extraordinary, they begin to retire still earlier in the most southerly parts of Andalusia, where they can be no ways influenced by any defect of heat, or, as one might suppose, defect of food. Are they regulated in their motions with us, by a failure of food, or by a propensity to moulting, or by a disposition to rest after so rapid a life, or by what? This is one of those incidents in natural history that not only baffles our searches, but almost eludes our guesses. These hirundines never perch on trees or roofs, and so never congregate with their congeners. They are fearless while haunting their nesting places, and are not to be scared with a gun and are often beaten down with poles and cudgels as they stoop to go under the eaves. Swifts are much infested with those pests to the genus, called Hippoboscae hirundinus, and often wriggle and scratch themselves in their flight to get rid of that clinging annoyance. Swifts are no songsters, and have only one harsh, screaming note, yet there are ears to which it is not displeasing, from an agreeable association of ideas, since that note never occurs but in the most lovely summer weather. They never settle on the ground but through accident, and when down can hardly rise, on account of the shortness of their legs and the length of their wings. Neither can they walk, but only crawl. But they have a strong grasp with their feet, by which they cling to walls. Their bodies being flat, they can enter a very narrow crevice, and where they cannot pass on their bellies they will turn up edgewise. 
The particular formation of the foot discriminates the swift from all British hirundines, and indeed from all other known birds, the hirundo melba, great white-bellied swift of Gibraltar, excepted, for it is so disposed as to carry omnes quatuor digitos anticos, all its four toes forward. Besides, the least toe, which should be the back toe, consists of one bone alone, and the other three only of two apiece, a construction most rare and peculiar, but nicely adapted to the purposes in which their feet are employed. This, and some peculiarities attending the nostrils and undemandable, have induced a discerning naturalist, note, John Anthony Scopoli of Carniola, M.D., end note, to suppose that this species might constitute a genus per se. In London a party of swifts frequents the tower, playing and feeding over the river just below the bridge. Others haunt some of the churches of the borough next the fields, but do not venture, like the house-martin, into the close crowded part of the town. The Swedes have bestowed a very pertinent name on this swallow, calling it Ring Swala, from the perpetual rings or circles that it takes round the scene of its nidification. Swifts feed on coleoptera, or small beetles with hard cases over their wings, as well as on the softer insects, but it does not appear how they can procure gravel to grind their food, as swallows do, since they never settle on the ground. Young ones, overrun with hippoboscae, are sometimes found under their nests fallen to the ground, the number of vermin rendering their abode insupportable any longer. They frequent in this village several abject cottages, yet a succession still haunts the same unlikely roofs. A good proof this, that the same birds return to the same spots. As they must stoop very low to get up under these humble eaves, cats lie in wait, and sometimes catch them on the wing. On the 5th of July, 1775, I again untiled part of a roof over the nest of a swift. The dam sat in the nest, but so strongly was she affected by natural storga for her brood, which she supposed to be in danger, that regardless of her own safety she would not stir, but lay sullenly by them, permitting herself to be taken in hand. The squab young we brought down and placed on the grass plot, where they tumbled about, and were as helpless as a newborn child. While we contemplated their naked bodies, their unwieldy disproportioned abdomina, and their heads, too heavy for their necks to support, we could not but wonder, when we reflected, that these shiftless beings, in a little more than a fortnight, would be able to dash through the air almost with the inconceivable swiftness of a meteor, and perhaps in their emigrations must traverse vast continents and oceans as distant as the equator. So soon does nature advance small birds to their elichia, or state of perfection, while the progressive growth of men and large quadrupeds is slow and tedious. I am, etc. Letter 22 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, September the 13th, 1774. Dear Sir, by means of a straight cottage chimney, I had an opportunity this summer of remarking at my leisure how swallows ascend and descend through the shaft, but my pleasure in contemplating the address with which this feat was performed, to a considerable depth in the chimney, was somewhat interrupted by apprehensions, lest my eyes might undergo the same fate with those of Tobit. Note, Tobit, chapter 2, verse 10, end note. Perhaps it may be some amusement to you to hear at what times the different species of hirundines arrived at this spring in three very distant counties of this kingdom. 
With us, the swallow was seen first on April the 4th, the swift on April the 24th, the bank martin on April the 12th, and the house martin not till April the 30th. At South Zeal, Devonshire, swallows did not arrive till April the 25th, swifts in plenty on May the 1st, and house martins not till the middle of May. At Blackburn, in Lancashire, swifts were seen April the 28th, swallows April the 29th, house martins May the 1st. Do these different dates in such distant districts prove anything for or against migration? A farmer near Wayhill fallows his land with two teams of asses, one of which works till noon, and the other in the afternoon. When these animals have done their work, they are penned all night, like sheep, on the fallow. In the winter they are confined and foddered in a yard, and make plenty of dung. Linnaeus says that hawks, pascicuntur inducias comaevibus, quamdiu cuculus cuculat. Readers note, they truce with the birds, as long as the cuckoo calls. End readers note. But it appears to me that during that period many little birds are taken and destroyed by birds of prey, as may be seen by their feathers left in lanes and under hedges. The missile-thrush is, while breeding, fierce and pugnacious, driving such birds as approach its nest with great fury to a distance. The Welsh call it pen Llwyn, the head or master of the coppice. He suffers no magpie, jay, or blackbird to enter the garden where he haunts, and is for the time a good guard to the new-sown legumens. In general he is very successful in the defence of his family, but once I observed in my garden that several magpies came determined to storm the nest of a missile-thrush. The dams defended their mansion with great vigour, and fought resolutely pro aris et focis, but numbers at last prevailed. They tore the nest to pieces, and swallowed the young alive. In the season of nidification, the wildest birds are comparatively tame. Thus the ring-dove breeds in my fields, though they are continually frequented, and the missile-thrush, though most shy and wild in the autumn and winter, builds in my garden close to a walk where people are passing all day long. Wall-fruit abounds with me this year, but my grapes, that used to be forward and good, are at present backward beyond all precedent. And this is not the worst of the story, for the same ungenial weather, the same black cold solstice, has injured the more necessary fruits of the earth, and discoloured and blighted our wheat. The crop of hops promises to be very large. Frequent returns of deafness incommode me sadly, and half disqualify me for a naturalist, for when those fits are upon me I lose all the pleasing notices and little intimations arising from rural sounds, and May is to me as silent and mute with respect to the notes of birds, etc., as August. My eyesight is, thank God, quick and good, but with respect to the other sense I am at times disabled, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. Letter 23 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, June 8th, 1775. Dear Sir, on September the 21st, 1741, being then on a visit, and intent on field diversions, I rose before daybreak. When I came into the enclosures I found the stubbles and clover grounds matted all over with a thick coat of cobweb, in the meshes of which a copious and heavy dew hung so plentifully that the whole face of the country seemed as it were covered with two or three setting-nets, drawn one over another. 
When the dogs attempted to hunt, their eyes were so blinded and hoodwinked that they could not proceed, but were obliged to lie down and scrape the encumbrances from their faces with their forefeet, so that, finding my sport interrupted, I returned home, musing in my mind on the oddness of the occurrence. As the morning advanced, the sun became bright and warm, and the day turned out one of those most lovely ones which no season but the autumn produces, cloudless, calm, serene, and worthy of the south of France itself. About nine an appearance very unusual began to demand our attention, a shower of cobwebs falling from very elevated regions, and continuing without any interruption till the close of the day. These webs were not single filmy threads floating in the air in all directions, but perfect flakes or rags, some near an inch broad and five or six long, which fell with a degree of velocity which showed they were considerably heavier than the atmosphere. On every side, as the observer turned his eyes, might he behold a continual succession of fresh flakes falling into his sight, and twinkling like stars as they turned their sides towards the sun. How far this wonderful shower extended would be difficult to say, but we know that it reached Bradley, Selborne, and Alresford, three places which lie in a sort of triangle, the shortest of whose sides is about eight miles in extent. At the second of those places there was a gentleman, for whose veracity and intelligent turn we have the greatest veneration, who observed it the moment he got abroad, but concluded that as soon as he came upon the hill above his house, where he took his morning rides, he should be higher than this meteor, which he imagined might have been blown, like thistledown, from the common above. But to his great astonishment, when he rode to the most elevated part of the down, three hundred feet above his fields, he found the webs in appearance still as much above him as before, still descending into sight in a constant succession, and twinkling in the sun, so as to draw the attention of the most incurious. Neither before nor after was any such fall observed, but on this day the flakes hung in the trees and hedges so thick that a diligent person sent out might have gathered baskets full. The remark that I shall make on these cobweb-like appearances, called gossamer, is that, strange and superstitious as the notions about them were formerly, nobody in these days doubts but that they are the real production of small spiders, which swarm in the fields in fine weather in autumn, and have a power of shooting out webs from their tails so as to render themselves buoyant and lighter than air. But why these rapturous insects should that day take such a wonderful aerial excursion, and why their webs should at once become so gross and material as to be considerably more weighty than air, and to descend with precipitation, is a matter beyond my skill. If I might be allowed to hazard a supposition, I should imagine that those filmy threads, when first shot, might be entangled in the rising dew, and so drawn up, spiders and all, by a brisk evaporation into the region where clouds are formed. And if the spiders have a power of coiling and thickening their webs in the air, as Dr. Lister says they have, note, see his letters to Mr. Ray, end note, then when they were become heavier than the air, they must fall. Each day in fine weather, in autumn chiefly, do I see those spiders shooting out their webs and mounting aloft. They will go off from your finger if you will take them into your hand. Last summer one alighted on my book as I was reading in the parlour, and running to the top of the page and shooting out a web took its departure from thence. But what I most wondered at was that it went off with considerable velocity in a place where no air was stirring, and I am sure that I did not assist it with my breath. 
so that these little crawlers seem to have, while mounting, some locomotive power without the use of wings, and to move in the air faster than the air itself. Letter 24 to the Honourable Daines Barrington, Selborne, August the 15th, 1775. Dear Sir, there is a wonderful spirit of sociality in the brute creation, independent of sexual attachment. The congregating of gregarious birds in the winter is a remarkable instance. Many horses, though quiet with company, will not stay one minute in a field by themselves. The strongest fences cannot restrain them. My neighbour's horse will not only not stay by himself abroad, but he will not bear to be left alone in a strange stable, without discovering the utmost impatience, and endeavouring to break the rack and manger with his forefeet. He has been known to leap out at a stable window, through which dung was thrown, after company, and yet in other respects is remarkably quiet. Oxen and cows will not fatten by themselves, but will neglect the finest pasture that is not recommended by society. It would be needless to instance in sheep, which constantly flock together. But this propensity seems not to be confined to animals of the same species, for we know a doe still alive that was brought up from a little fawn with a dairy of cows. With them it goes afield, and with them it returns to the yard. The dogs of the house take no notice of this deer, being used to her. But if strange dogs come by, a chase ensues, while the master smiles to see his favourite, securely leading her pursuers over hedge or gate or stile, till she returns to the cows, who with fierce lowings and menacing horns drive the assailants quite out of the pasture. Even great disparity of kind and size does not always prevent social advances and mutual fellowship, for a very intelligent and observant person has assured me that, in the former part of his life, keeping but one horse, he happened also on a time to have but one solitary hen. These two incongruous animals spent much of their time together in a lonely orchard, where they saw no creature but each other. By degrees an apparent regard began to take place between these two sequestered individuals. The fowl would approach the quadruped with notes of complacency, rubbing herself gently against his legs, while the horse would look down with satisfaction, and move with the greatest caution and circumspection, lest he should trample on his diminutive companion. Thus, by mutual good offices, each seemed to console the vacant hours of the other, so that Milton, when he puts the following sentiment in the mouth of Adam, seems to be somewhat mistaken. Much less can bird with beast, or fish with fowl, so well converse, nor with the ox the ape. I am, etc. Letter 25 to the Honourable Daines Barrington. Selborne, October the 2nd, 1775. Dear Sir, we have two gangs or hordes of gypsies which infest the south and west of England, and come round in their circuit two or three times in the year. One of these tribes calls itself by the noble name of Stanley, of which I have nothing particular to say, but the other is distinguished by an appellative somewhat remarkable. As far as their harsh gibberish can be understood, they seem to say that the name of their clan is Curliopal. Now the termination of this word is apparently Grecian, and as Mesere and the gravest historians all agree that these vagrants did certainly migrate from Egypt and the East two or three centuries ago, and so spread by degrees over Europe, may not this name, a little corrupted, be the very name they brought with them from the Levant? 
It would be a matter of some curiosity, could one meet with an intelligent person among them, to inquire whether, in their jargon, they still retain any Greek words. The Greek radicals will appear in hand, foot, head, water, earth, etc. It is possible that amidst their cant and corrupted dialect, many mutilated remains of their native language might still be discovered. With regard to those peculiar people, the gypsies, one thing is very remarkable, and especially as they came from warmer climates, and that is, that while other beggars lodge in barns, stables, and cow-houses, these sturdy savages seem to pride themselves in braving the severities of winter, and in living sub-dio the whole year round. Last September was as wet a month as ever was known, and yet during those deluges did a young gypsy girl lie in in the midst of one of our hop-gardens, on the cold ground, with nothing over her but a piece of blanket extended on a few hazel-rods, bent hoop-fashion and stuck into the earth at each end, in circumstances too trying for a cow in the same condition. Yet within this garden there was a large hop-kiln, into the chambers of which she might have retired, had she thought shelter an object worthy her attention. Europe itself, it seems, cannot set bounds to the rovings of these vagabonds. For Mr. Bell, in his return from Peking, met a gang of these people on the confines of Tartary, who were endeavouring to penetrate those deserts, and try their fortune in China. Gypsies are called in French Bohemians, in Italian and modern Greek Zingari. I am, etc. Letter 26 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, November 1st, 1775. Dear Sir, Hic tede pingues, hic plurimus ignis semper, et assidua postes fuligni nigri. Reader's note. Here are pitch torches, here the fire blazes always high, with doorposts blackened by everlasting soot. Virgil. End reader's note. I shall make no apology for troubling you with the detail of a very simple piece of domestic economy being satisfied that you think nothing beneath your attention that tends to utility. The matter alluded to is the use of rushes instead of candles, which I am well aware prevails in many districts beside this, but as I know there are countries also where it does not obtain, and as I have considered the subject with some degree of exactness, I shall proceed in my humble story, and leave you to judge of the expediency. The proper species of rush for this purpose seems to be the joncosifusus, or common soft rush, which is to be found in most moist pastures, by the sides of streams, and under hedges. These rushes are in best condition in the height of summer, but may be gathered, so as to serve the purpose well, quite on to autumn. It would be needless to add that the largest and longest are best. Decayed labourers, women, and children make it their business to procure and prepare them. As soon as they are cut, they must be flung into water, and kept there, for otherwise they will dry and shrink, and the peel will not run. At first a person would find it no easy matter to divest a rush of its peel or rind, so as to leave one regular, narrow, even rib, from top to bottom, that may support the pith. But this, like other feats, soon becomes familiar even to children, and we have seen an old woman, stone-blind, performing this business with great dispatch and seldom failing to strip them with the nicest regularity. When these junkie are thus far prepared, they must lie out on the grass to be bleached, and take the dew for some nights, and afterwards be dried in the sun. 
Some address is required in dipping these rushes in the scalding fat or grease, but this knack also is to be attained by practice. The careful wife of an industrious Hampshire labourer obtains all her fat for nothing, for she saves the scummings of her bacon-pot for this use, and if the grease abounds with salt, she causes the salt to precipitate to the bottom by setting the scummings in a warm oven. Where hogs are not much in use, and especially by the seaside, the coarser animal oils will come very cheap. A pound of common grease may be procured for four pence, and about six pounds of grease will dip a pound of rushes, and one pound of rushes may be bought for one shilling, so that a pound of rushes, medicated and ready for use, will cost three shillings. If men that keep bees will mix a little wax with the grease, it will give it a consistency and render it more cleanly, and make the rushes burn longer. Mutton suet would have the same effect. A good rush, which, measured in length two feet four inches and a half, being minuted, burnt only three minutes short of an hour, and a rush still of greater length has been known to burn one hour and a quarter. These rushes give a good clear light. Watchlights, coated with tallow, it is true, shed a dismal one, darkness visible, but then the wicks of those have two ribs of the rind or peel to support the pith while the wick of the dipped rush has but one. The two ribs are intended to impede the progress of the flame and make the candle last. In a pound of dry rushes, avoidupois, which I caused to be weighed and numbered, we found upwards of one thousand six hundred individuals. Now, suppose each of these burns one with another only half an hour, then a poor man will purchase eight hundred hours of light, a time exceeding thirty-three entire days for three shillings. According to this account, each rush, before dipping, costs one-thirty-third of a farthing, and one-eleventh afterwards. Thus a poor family will enjoy five and a half hours of comfortable light for a farthing. An experienced old housekeeper assures me that one pound and a half of rushes completely supplies his family the year round since working people burn no candle in the long days, because they rise and go to bed by daylight. Little farmers use rushes much in the short days, both morning and evening in the dairy and kitchen, but the very poor, who are always the worst economists, and therefore must continue very poor, buy an halfpenny candle every evening, which in their blowing open rooms does not burn much more than two hours. Thus have they only two hours' light for their money instead of eleven. While on the subject of rural economy, it may not be improper to mention a pretty implement of housewifery that we have seen nowhere else, that is, little neat besoms which our foresters make from the stalk of the Polytricum communi, or great golden maidenhair, which they call silkwood, and find plenty in the bogs. When this moss is well combed and dressed, and divested of its outer skin, it becomes of a beautiful bright chestnut colour and being soft and pliant is very proper for the dusting of beds, curtains, carpets, hangings, etc. If these besoms were known to the brushmakers in town, it is probable they might come much in use for the purpose above mentioned. Note, a besom of this sort is to be seen in Sir Ashton Lever's museum. End note. I am, etc. Letter 27 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Selborne, December the 12th, 1775. Dear Sir, we had in this village more than twenty years ago an idiot boy, whom I well remember, who from a child showed a strong propensity to bees. They were his food, his amusement, his sole object, 
But as people of this caste have seldom more than one point in view, so this lad exerted all his few faculties on this one pursuit. In the winter he dozed away his time, within his father's house, by the fireside in a kind of torpid state, seldom departing from the chimney-corner. But in the summer he was all alert, and in quest of his game in the fields and on sunny banks. Honey-bees, humble-bees, and wasps were his prey, wherever he found them. He had no apprehensions from their stings, but would seize them, nudis manibus, and at once disarm them of their weapons, and suck their bodies for the sake of their honey-bags. Sometimes he would fill his bosom between his shirt and his skin with a number of these captives, and sometimes would confine them in bottles. He was a very merops apiaster, or bee-bird, and very injurious to men that kept bees, for he would slide into their bee-gardens, and sitting down before the stools, would rap with his fingers on the hives, and so take the bees as they came out. He has been known to overturn hives for the sake of honey, of which he was passionately fond. Where Metheglin was making, he would linger round the tubs and vessels, begging a draught of what he called bee-wine. As he ran about he used to make a humming noise with his lips, resembling the buzzing of bees. This lad was lean and sallow, and of a cadaverous complexion, and except in his favourite pursuit, in which he was wonderfully adroit, discovered no manner of understanding. Had his capacity been better, and directed to the same object, he had perhaps abated much of our wonder at the feats of a more modern exhibitor of bees, and we may justly say of him now, Thou, had thy presiding star propitious, John, shouldst wildman be. When a tall youth he was removed from hence to a distant village, where he died, as I understand, before he arrived at manhood. I am, etc. Letter twenty-eight to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, January the eighth, seventeen seventy-six. Dear sir, it is the hardest thing in the world to shake off superstitious prejudices. They are sucked in, as it were, with our mother's milk, and growing up with us at a time when they take the fastest hold and make the most lasting impressions become so interwoven into our very constitutions that the strongest good sense is required to disengage ourselves from them. No wonder, therefore, that the lower people retain them their whole lives through, since their minds are not invigorated by a liberal education, and therefore not enabled to make any efforts adequate to the occasion. Such a preamble seems to be necessary before we enter on the superstitions of this district, lest we should be suspected of exaggeration in a recital of practices too gross for this enlightened age. But the people of Tring in Hertfordshire would do well to remember that no longer ago than the year 1751, and within twenty miles of the capital, they seized on two superannuated wretches, crazed with age and overwhelmed with infirmities, on a suspicion of witchcraft, and by trying experiments drowned them in a horse-pond. In a farmyard near the middle of this village stands at this day a row of pollard ashes, which by the seams and long cicatrices down their sides manifestly show that in former times they have been cleft asunder. These trees, when young and flexible, were severed and held open by wedges, while ruptured children, stripped naked, were pushed through the apertures under a persuasion that, by such a process, the poor babes would be cured of their infirmity. As soon as the operation was over, the tree, in the suffering part, was plastered with loam, and carefully swathed up, 
If the parts coalesced and soldered together, as usually fell out where the feat was performed with any adroitness at all, the party was cured. But where the cleft continued to gape, the operation, it was supposed, would prove ineffectual. Having occasion to enlarge my garden, not long since, I cut down two or three such trees, one of which did not grow together. We have several persons now living in the village who in their childhood were supposed to be healed by this superstitious ceremony, derived down perhaps from our Saxon ancestors, who practised it before their conversion to Christianity. At the south corner of the Plestor, or area near the church, there stood about twenty years ago a very old, grotesque, hollow pollard ash, which for ages had been looked on with no small veneration as a shrew ash. Now a shrew ash is an ash whose twigs or branches, when gently applied to the limbs of cattle, will immediately relieve the pains which a beast suffers from the running of a shrew-mouse over the part affected. For it is supposed that a shrew-mouse is of so baneful and deleterious a nature, that wherever it creeps over a beast, be it horse, cow, or sheep, the suffering animal is afflicted with cruel anguish, and threatened with the loss of the use of the limb. Against this accident, to which they were continually liable, our provident forefathers always kept a shrew ash at hand, which, when once medicated, would maintain its virtue for ever. A shrew ash was made thus. Into the body of the tree a deep hole was bored with an auger, and a poor devoted shrew-mouse was thrust in alive, and plugged in, no doubt with several quaint incantations long since forgotten. As the ceremonies necessary for such a consecration are no longer understood, all succession is at an end, and no such tree is known to subsist in the manor or hundred. As to that on the plester, the late vicar stubbed it and burnt it, when he was way-warden, regardless of the remonstrances of the bystanders, who interceded in vain for its preservation, urging its power and efficacy, and alleging that it had been religioni patrum multus servata per annos. Reader's note. Save for many years by our ancestors' reverence. End reader's note. I am, etc. The end of section 10 of The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White